I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. I'm joined today by two guests, Deborah Friedel, a contributing editor at the LRB, who wrote recently on Roe v. Wade. Her piece was a review of Joshua Prager's book, The Family Row, an American Story. Hello, Deborah. Hello, Tom. And Laura Beers, who teaches history at the American University in Washington, D.C., and has written two pieces for the LRB blog on reproductive rights. The first, when Donald Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court in 2018, and the second during the confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett in 2020. Hello, Laura, and thank you both very much for joining me. Hello, Tom. So on the 24th of June, 2022, the Supreme Court of the United States issued its decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, taking away the constitutional right to abortion that was established in Roe v. Wade nearly 50 years ago. Everyone saw this coming since Trump's appointments to the Supreme Court, but some people, grassroots activists, local reproductive rights organisers, seem to have been better prepared than others, the Democratic leadership, for example. So did the opinion come as a shock, Laura, even if it wasn't a surprise? Well, I think the opinion didn't come in a shock, as a shock um, at the moment that it dropped on June 24th because it had leaked a month beforehand, which gave the wider public as well as the political establishment some time to come to terms with, with what was about to happen. But I think when that opinion leaked, it was a shock because the assumption had been that while Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health was likely to be decided on lines that would roll back Roe v. Wade, that it wouldn't reverse Roe v. Wade, right? This was a decision specifically about whether abortion could be limited before fetal viability, specifically at 15 weeks. And to decide that it could, in this case, um, this Mississippi case, would have been a further curtailment of Roe, um, which has been sort of suffering a death by a thousand cuts, basically, since it um, became established law in 1973. The fact that um, five of the nine justices went further than that and used this as an opportunity to completely overturn the Roe decision and take the decision to outlaw abortion and send it back to the states, I think most people didn't see coming. And if they had, they would have pursued different political strategies to try to instantiate abortion rights, not just in a constitutional decision, but in written law in the United States. Yeah, so obviously, I mean, it has huge implications legally, politically, and practically. And so if you take those in reverse order, beginning with what will it mean for the most immediately and severely affected? Ariane Chavizzi recently observed that a recent study showed that ban on abortion would lead to a 21% rise in deaths overall and a 33% rise for black people just because pregnancy is riskier than abortion. Factor in the rise in unsafe abortions and those numbers will be higher still. I mean, those numbers, well, they sound really dramatic. Maternal mortality rates have been falling across the, across the globe for the past century. So, But I mean, it will, it will likely lead to a rise in maternal mortality and one that is disproportionately experienced by women of color, and particularly African-American women. Black women in the United States 
have had historically much higher levels of maternal mortality and are also, according to the CDC, um, five times as likely to have abortions as white women. Latina women are twice as likely to have abortions as white women. And abortion opponents would say this is effectively a form of, of eugenics, that it's an awful thing that women of color are pursuing abortions at a higher rate. Um, but you take that to the flip side and you say pregnancy is much riskier in America for women of color. Um, they have much worse access to health care, are more likely to be on Medicaid, are more likely to be misdiagnosed or to have their pain ignored by healthcare providers. And they're also much more likely to be poor, right, and not unable to, to raise the children that they're carrying. So they have greater need to abortion in order to protect you know, their own health, their financial security, the well-being of their existing families, and are likely to be disproportionately affected by this decision as a result. I mean, and there are, I mean, I was reading one article the other day about the likely rise in um, maternal mortality through homicide is the result of lack of abortion access. You know, I mean, if you can't bully your partner into terminating a pregnancy, I mean, terminating their lives and the lives of their unborn fetus is another way of going about it, um, which is horrific to think about. Yeah, because that's also the question that abortion needs to be looked at as part of a wider system of healthcare and of reproductive rights, that it's a question of access to abortion, but also access to contraception, access to childcare, and all those other things that, that come with it. Well, I think the question of contraception is something we might want to come back to, because while Justice Alito, who wrote the majority decision, sort of said this, this decision is specifically about revisiting Roe, Clarence Thomas, who wrote a concurring opinion, did say we might want to come back to the Griswold decision of 1965, which enshrined a constitutional right to contraception um, in the privacy of the, the home. And so that's something we might want to revisit. But in terms of this broader question about women's health, right, this is something that Republicans have tended to look at abortion as a discrete phenomenon. It's about the life of the child right in the womb. Whereas those who've said both proponents of a woman's right to choose, but also proponents of women's rights more broadly, have said abortion has to be linked to broader questions of women's and children's health. You know, what protections are there for a woman while she is pregnant? What protections are there for the child in terms of a social safety net once it's born? Um, you know, there are reasons other than that they're evil, <laughs> that women seek recourse to abortion, and our society is, has really failed to address those. There was a, a tweet that went viral that someone had just said there isn't even baby formula on the shelves. Yeah. And again, you know, being poor and working class, particularly in the United States, which has very limited maternity leave provision for most working women, you know, baby formula is crucial. And, you know, breastfeeding is in some ways a luxury of, of people who can take maternity leave. And so a society that, you know, doesn't even have maternity leave is not one that is is very well set up to, um, to look after these children once they're born, if the state is mandating that they be born. I wonder if I could go back to your question about whether the Dobbs decision was a surprise or should have been a surprise. Yeah. I wonder. I mean, I mean obviously, it's easy to say now that we should have seen it coming, but maybe we shouldn't have been quite so shocked. Trump campaigned on this. I mean, he promised in a debate with Hillary Clinton that if he became president, Roe would be overturned and he would do it by appointing justices who would do exactly that, justices who wouldn't 
necessarily wait for the perfect Supreme Court case in order to decide. So Jeffrey Tubin tweeted as soon as Justice Kennedy announced he was going to retire a few years ago, ah, Roe is going to be overturned, that this was the, the deal that Trump made with Mitch McConnell, you know, look the other way as I embarrass the party, but I'm going to give you what you want when it comes to Roe. I mean, I think it also goes back to, I mean, the two pieces that I wrote for the LRB blog, right, both took place in the context of the confirmation hearings for Kavanaugh and then Amy Coney Barrett. And in both of those, you had Susan Collins in particular, who is the very centrist but Republican senator from Maine, you know, coming out and saying she was satisfied by the insurances that she had from Kavanaugh and Barrett, that they respected, you know, settled precedent and law. And this is a kind of coded way of saying that they they weren't about to rapidly overturn Roe v. Wade, right? They won't come out and say anything in these confirmation hearings about what they intend to do. But you kind of dance around those questions by asking things like, what are your views on precedents and super precedents and you know, whether or not Roe v. Wade is a super precedent? And Collins stomached voting for these candidates in part, she claimed, because she thought she'd been satisfied about their respect for the precedent that was Roe v. Wade. And so was she just overwhelmingly naive? Was the broader political establishment overwhelmingly naive about the speed with which both of these justices, as well as Neil Gorsuch, who was also appointed by Trump, were prepared to overturn this settled precedent? And there have been calls for them presumably not very realistic ones, but for them to be impeached because they to say they said these things in the hearings and they have now acted as justices in a way that they said they wouldn't, so that they therefore lied during their, their well, hearings. They didn't quite lie. I mean, I, I think as, as other people have pointed out, they're lawyers. They spoke very carefully. They're able sometimes in conversations to give an impression that they might rule a certain way when actually, if you parse the statements, they're, they're being very careful. They hedged. Sure. And Susan Collins can also be disingenuous. She has an election to win in Maine. It seems in some ways as if this decision is taking America back to a world before Roe v. Wade. And maybe, Deborah, you could talk us through a little bit the circumstances that led to the case coming before the Supreme Court in 1973, as, as Joshua Prager lays out in his book and as you, you wrote about in your piece. So Jane Roe was a pseudonym for a woman called Norma McCorvey. And she was a poor woman. She described herself as Cajun. She was born in Louisiana, moved to Texas. She thought of herself as a lesbian, but also slept with men. And by 1973, she'd been pregnant three times. Um, her first child was adopted by her mother her second child was adopted by strangers. And when she was pregnant a third time, she asked the lawyer who had helped her arrange the adoption of her second child to help her get an abortion. And the lawyer was friends through his church with a young lawyer called Linda Coffey, who was looking, as it happened, uh, for a plaintiff. This was a, you know, a woman, Linda Coffey, who was in her mid-20s, just a few years out of law school, she was bored. She struggled to get a good legal job in Texas. Law firms didn't like hiring women. And she had a sense. She was looking at cases that were coming down in other states, uh, particularly California. Th this was a good moment. And the abortion was illegal in Texas. So abortion was illegal in Texas. 
The only exception was if the abortion would absolutely save the life of the mother. No other exceptions for rape, for incest, for fetal deformity. And at that time, other states were beginning very slightly to liberalize. So would make an exception for rape, maybe, or rape and incest. Texas seemed unlikely to liberalize the laws on their books through the state legislature. And young lawyers had an idea that a better way would be to go through the courts. And the best way, they thought, would be to have a case that would reach the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court was willing to liberalize abortion law, that would just be really efficient. Suddenly, all the states in the country would have to liberalize at the same time. And that case, much to almost everyone's surprise, it did get all the way to the Supreme Court. And, and at that point, another lawyer enters the picture who actually argued the case. Yeah, called Sarah Weddington. Who was much more famous. And one of the amazing things that you make clear in your in your review of um, Joshua Prager's book, I mean, you make him sound like the best journalist on earth, the way that he manages to... That, right, Linda Coffey had never given interviews to anyone for years, and he found her and he talked to her and he and, and to McCrawvey. And, and also the other question, of course, is that about this waiting for the Supreme Court to hear the case is obviously going to be too late for the young pregnant woman, because it's time limited by the nature of pregnancy. Yeah, and there's definitely a question of how much did Norma McCorvey understand when she agreed to become a plaintiff. By the time she met with Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington, she was so far along in her pregnancy, there was nowhere in the United States that she would have been allowed to have an abortion. The lawyers really needed a plaintiff. They weren't going to go out of their way to help her get an abortion. So Years later, Norma McCorvey was furious when she found out that Sarah Weddington herself had once had an illegal abortion in Mexico. So Norma McCorvey didn't understand why Sarah didn't help her to get an abortion in Mexico. Sarah Weddington had been part of an illegal referral network that helped women get abortions from sympathetic doctors who were willing to violate the law. And Norma McCorvey felt betrayed when she found out that actually, you know, her lawyer maybe could have helped her to get an illegal an abortion, but didn't because she wanted Norma to be a plaintiff. And she was a plaintiff and the Supreme Court decided they would hear the case and they decided on privacy grounds. Is that right? That they say that the, the Constitution gives a right to privacy between a, a pregnant woman and her doctor. And therefore, that makes it impossible to legislate against abortion. Was that more or less the legal argument? Yeah, and this was an idea that had grown out of a, of a previous case. Griswold versus Connecticut allowed for married couples to access contraception. Um, and that established an idea that, ooh, there's an inherent right to privacy in the Constitution, that even though the Constitution never explicitly refers to a right to privacy, you know, it has to be in there somewhere, implied. I mean, the other thing which is which you mentioned in your piece, Deborah, that is coming out of this discussion is the extent to which it has become perhaps the most partisan issue in the in the United States now, in a way that it didn't used to be, that Reagan kind of pro-choice because, and that, as you'd expect a libertarian to be, that they didn't used to split down these Republican democratic lines. Yeah. So in 1973, um, it was incredible just, yeah, how much abortion was really not a partisan issue, where you had pro-life Republicans, pro-life Democrats, and family planning was seen as genuinely nonpartisan. 
what you had within the Democratic Party were, you know, Catholics in the Northeast who tended to be pro-life. You had Republicans who who really saw the idea of a, being a Republican was not to have government intervention, to be pro-freedom. That meant you weren't going to stand between a woman and her doctor. So George H.W. Bush, really pro-choice. Ronald Reagan, um, as governor in California, makes California the most liberal state in the nation when it comes to abortion before Roe, that allowed abortions up to 20 weeks in most circumstances. So how did it become, I mean, partly when did this happen and how did it become such a partisan issue? How was it that that abortion became such a divisive question and along party political lines? That's a great question and probably no one right answer. In some ways, it it was the Roe decision, which really lit a fire under the pro-life movement. It starts growing. Some people say the rise of color photographs of the fetus. There are papers that show how the evangelical movement in America, which really had been, if anything, pro-choice before Roe, starts changing. People who had been segregationists drop segregation. They realize it's politically not salable, join the pro-life movement. I don't have a very good answer. And if Laura wants to save me, she's welcome to. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think all of those partial answers that Deborah gave, right, are contributing factors. And I think it's within the United States, a much bigger um, shift, but you can see it taking place in Britain as well. Right. Um, in 1967, when abortion is legalized in the United Kingdom, it's similarly not a party political issue. In recent years, abortion now has been limited to 24 weeks, excepting in cases of severe risk to the life of the mother or disability of the fetus. But attempts to further roll back the abortion ban to 20 weeks have actually tended to be very partisan and much more likely to be supported by by Tory MPs than by liberal and labor MPs. And I think that reflects a broader shift within conservatism from a kind of libertarian conservatism of the more Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher variety to one that is more imbued by kind of concerns of a moral majority on the right and is most noteworthy in the US where it's become the dominant narrative, but I think is more broadly evident across um, conservatisms in the West more generally. You've talked about the moral majority, Laura, but that but a majority of people in the United States are pro-abortion, that the American people overall are more lib- far more liberal than the Supreme Court. I think that is tricky, Tom. I mean, it's the, again, in the context of legal speak, Deborah was talking about sort of parsing language very carefully. But in the context of opinion polling, which is something that I've worked on throughout my career, you also have to be really careful about the way that you parse language, right? If you ask people before the repeal of the decision, they support Roe v. Wade. You know, you had these majorities of upwards of 60% saying yes. But that, for most people, was kind of a proxy of do you support women having some kind of reproductive choice, as opposed to a thought out, yes, my position on abortion is that I support the right to access abortion until fetal viability, which is about 24 weeks. And so when you start to break that down and pose the question differently and ask people, do you support abortion in the first trimester? You still get wide majority saying yes. But you ask, do you support access to abortion in the second trimester? Those numbers drop considerably. Right? The second trimester starts 
at the end of your 13th week. That's well before fetal viability. But people start to get nervous about whether once you can see something that kind of looks like maybe a proto-baby on an ultrasound, are they still in favor of abortion? So the opinion polls, while they do show significant majorities for some type of abortion in the U.S., are once you kind of break them down, it's not really clear that what people supported was the access, largely unfettered access in the first two trimesters that was enshrined in Roe v. Wade. Laura, I wonder, how do you see those numbers changing six months from now, a year from now, as Americans, at least in certain states, get used to a very different landscape? They've had a right for 50 years. They don't know what it's like to live without it. We're not quite sure what it's going to look like, but it might mean miscarriages get investigated. Has a woman committed a crime? A miscarriage can look an awful lot like an abortion when they realize that their doctors feel handcuffed, when certain states, say Oklahoma, make it illegal to go to another state for an abortion? I mean, that's an interesting question, right, Deva? And I mean, the statistic is that one in four women in the U.S. at some point in their lives will have an abortion. And you just have to, because the states that are criminalizing abortion tend to be poor um, or have you know, larger poor, you have to assume that a large number of these women who maybe are keeping silent about it or haven't thought it through and are saying that they support you know, the right to life actually are people who will probably have recourse to at least consider abortion at some time in their life. And if all of a sudden they don't have the option, do their views change, right? Does the way they act at the voting booth change? And this question, again, of miscarriage management and whether this becomes suspect and criminalized, there have been some horror stories coming out of Texas in particular in the last month about women trying to access medically necessary miscarriage management and being denied a dilation and curatage because it is the same procedure used for abortion, right? and doctors, OBGYNs, are afraid they might be prosecuted. And the whole question about whether you can stop people from traveling, I mean, that will be an interesting constitutional question, right? I mean, it's, I don't think you can legally stop a woman from crossing a, a border. I mean, this is not the age of the Fugitive Slave Act, right? But you can stop an abortion provider from the state of California from ever-changing planes in Dallas-Fort Worth, Right. Um, Because why would you, you know, if vigilante, um, you know, people in Texas can just arrest anyone involved in abortions, why would an abortion provider set foot in the state of Texas if they didn't need to um, from out of state? Because they the minute they did, they could be subject to lawsuits and massive fines. You know, I think there are ways in which people are really going to start looking at the devil, the details and saying, I'm not comfortable with the current landscape of abortion law in my state or in this country more broadly. So one thing that's likely to happen is it's this will accelerate the divisions between red states and blue states, liberal and conservative states. And the people who are able to move and choose to or choose not to will, in that sense, the people from California are less likely to go to Texas. People who want to leave Texas and can are more likely to now which means that the people who can't afford to leave Texas. And that raises questions about, you know, my sister works for a firm that is based in California but has large offices in Texas, right? And they've come out with a statement saying, well, any woman who works for our firm in Texas, we will pay for their cost associated with leaving the state if they need to receive an abortion out of state. But most people, their employer is not going to do that. 
and also is that kind of a cop out on the part of of my sister's farm, right? Should she, I mean, should they be saying instead we're going to boycott the state of Texas and you know not be based there? And I think and large multi-state firms in the U.S. Are going to be confronted with this question. You know, do we continue to have headquarters, manufacturing facilities? in states that outlaw abortion? Is it enough just to say, we'll help our employees leave the state? What happens to, to people whose employers don't take that kind of progressive attitude and who can't get the multiple days off that you would need to travel out of state and then obtain an abortion, um, who don't have the financial resources to cover that travel and associated cost? It's a kind of scary landscape. For, for the pro-life movement also, overturning Roe was a big step. But I think for a lot of members, it's also only a step. Mike Pence has already come out and said what he really wants, of course, is a federal ban on abortion. And that the moment that there's a Republican president and a Republican-controlled Senate, you know, that that's going to be you know, on the agenda. I'm skeptical of that, though, aren't you? I mean, I'm also skeptical of Mitch McConnell's kind of what seems to some degree dog whistling, saying he wouldn't take it off the table to um, to pass a federal ban on abortion. You know, I mean, it, it, because I feel like it's to appease those members of the pro-life movement who want to hear him say such things. But McConnell is nothing but, if not a tactician. And it is true that all of the polling says that, you know, the vast majority supports some kind of access in certain circumstances to abortion. And it just seems like it would be political suicide, which... McConnell is never going to knowingly commit to try to um, actually put through a federal ban. I don't know. I might be proved wrong. I've been proved wrong before. But this will probably be post-McConnell if you're seeing like which Trumpy candidates are leading in Senate races and also because of his age. And the Republican Party has shown that they're willing to play to the fringe. And the pro-life movement is firm. Abortion is murder. It's murder whether it's in a blue state or a red state. And this is a win, but they're hungry for more wins. I mean, if a federal ban is put in place, you know, there are some states and there will be more in the years to come, I think, that have written into their constitution a protection for abortion, either in anticipation of the possible reversal of Roe v. Wade or states that will, moving forward, put in place constitutional protections. So does the federal law just then invalidate state constitutions? That, again, is going to come before the Supreme Court, right? It you know, will be framed in a different context as a state's rights issue. Do you have the justices breaking the same way? I mean, I think there's a lot of unknowns, right, about how this might play out legislatively. Agreed. Justice Brennan famously said, of course, the, the most important rule of law when it comes to the Supreme Court is the rule of five, five justices, anything can happen. What Mike Pence, you know, says he wants, and he's representing a lot of people, is, of course, a, a fe some kind of fetal personhood amendment to the Constitution, which would have incredible implications. If, if a fetus is a person under the law, what does this mean, you know, for inheritance, for taxation? But this is the, the goal. How successful they'll be in 2024, I'm dubious also. But I think the last few weeks have shown us that more is possible than we realized. But cases, I mean, that you talked about horror stories earlier, Laura, and the, one, the case of the 10-year-old rape survivor in Ohio being denied an abortion in Ohio and having to go to Indiana, I think. I mean, that, I mean, overwhelming public opinion in that case, surely, had, however you phrase the question in the opinion poll, the, the, the idea that to put a 10-year-old child through that, 
who most people are not going to vote for that. I mean, that also raises the question, though, about whether or not you need most people behind you if what you're trying to do is ramrod through legislation in the United States. And you don't, right? We have a super gerrymandered um, you know, electoral map in most states. We have an overrepresentation you know, in terms of population of certain states within the Senate. And if the end game is the Mike Pence end game, right, which as Deborah suggested, which is to to change the law irrespective of the broader views of the public, it probably could be done. Whether it would be a good idea um, on many levels, not least in kind of pushing the two halves of America so far apart that, you know, maybe the the center can't hold anymore is a different question. But I think it's in the political realm of the possible at this point. I mean, this is sort of the dark hypothetical futures, but if it, to get back to the to the present now, in the terms of what practically has changed by the Supreme Court ruling. I know that there are some states which had these trigger laws that would that as soon as Roe v. Wade was overturned, various anti-abortion laws would come into effect or would come back into effect. But I mean, there are many places in the US where it's very difficult to get abortion care already. So Laura spoke about the death by a thousand cuts. And this has been a 50 year project. And in a way, I mean, sort of brilliant. So in every state, there would be hundreds of lawsuits over the years, attempts to get bills through the state legislature that often would just you know, take up the time of anyone on the pro-choice side, even if they would never get through because of the protections of Roe. But really sort of clever, multi-pronged attack just to make it as difficult as possible for a woman to access an abortion. So one example of many was, of course, a few years after the Roe decision, you get the Hyde Amendment, which means that the federal government is no longer permitted to spend money to help women get abortions. So an incredibly poor woman who normally would be able to access federal funds to pay for health care, no money. Homeless woman, you're on your own if you want an abortion. Make it as difficult as possible for an abortion clinic to operate. So in America, usually the land that doesn't like regulations Suddenly, if you want to have an abortion clinic, so many regulations that it's going to be really difficult to operate. You know, one year it'll be you need to have an elevator a certain number of feet wide, the next year even wider, rules for kinds of certifications that an abortionist needs to make it really cumbersome to practice. How about let's try putting a new rule. So if you're a married woman, maybe you need the permission of a husband to get an abortion. That might not get through the courts or it might not get through the state legislature, but we're going to take up your time in order to try it. I mean, so cut by cut by cut so that, yeah, what what, Tom, you were referring to, you'd get these abortion deserts where a woman would be hundreds of miles away from the nearest abortion clinic, even if she could get to one, she could get a car there would then probably be a waiting period. So by the time she reaches the clinic, she still is going to have to wait probably 24 hours, meaning she's going to have to pay to stay somewhere. She's going to have, if she has children, she's going to have to pay for childcare. I mean, just at every stage, just to make it harder for a woman to reach an abortion, even when it was legal, a doctor might have to give her a speech that the doctor doesn't want to give her that's going to claim that an abortion is more likely to give her breast cancer and make her depressed. She's going to have to submit to a really intrusive pelvic exam. I mean, almost anything that someone you know, could imagine to make it harder for a woman to get an abortion 
you know, was probably tried in one state or another. This goes back to, in discussions of what's happened in the last month, it's been the overturning of Roe, but also usually in tandem with Roe is the Casey decision, 1992's Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which said that undue burdens couldn't be placed in front of a woman's access to abortion. But if Roe was only overturned in this, this past month, Casey has effectively been being slowly overturned since 92. The winnowing down of what can be construed as an undue burden to the point where it's effectively a non-existent restraint has been happening for a long time, as Deborah emphasized. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. But the other thing is important that, that most abortions don't require surgical intervention or even to see a doctor. I mean, the question that in terms of, isn't this right, that you can take pills and you're at home and it's safer than many other things and there isn't actually the need to go to a clinic. I mean, you have to know who, where you're buying them from, but you can order pills online. Yeah, and I think this raises, I mean, the ability of states to interfere with the federal mail system is legally pretty problematic, right? Um, and so I think it's going to be difficult assuming, and these are big assumings, assuming a woman has the information about how to access and then the ability to access a prescriber of abortion pills out of state. It's going to be difficult to stop abortion pills coming into states where abortion is illegal and difficult to prosecute because they would travel presumably through the federal mail. And it does, I guess, go back to the question of whether or not um, anti-abortion activists see federal legislation to prohibit abortion as the next step, which would presumably make these crimes, to, in scare quotes, easier to prosecute. Though that doesn't cover women at later stages. You know, you can't use abortion pills in the second trimester. And the question of what happens to those women who either for reasons of not realizing that they were pregnant until later in the game, not being able to kind of make a decision about what they wanted to do immediately, not having access to information about where to get abortion pills early enough on, or having something go wrong in their pregnancy or discovering some kind of fetal anomaly later on in their pregnancy that makes them decide to terminate. What do you do if you you know, are making this decision not at eight weeks, but at 15, 18 weeks, and abortion pills are no longer an option? We've been talking about the possibility of federal legislation to ban abortion outright, that, you know, what Mike Pence wants. But the flip side of that is, in a sense, there have been 50 years in which there could have been federal legislation to protect them. But instead, people have been relying on on Roe and other Supreme Court decisions. And how, I mean, that appears now to have been quite a big mistake, that there must there must have been moments when there was a the majority in both houses of Congress and in the White House when they could have passed legislation enshrining the right to abortion. I mean, this raises the question, right, about how people perceive the court and how they perceive 
activist judicial interference in established precedent, right? I think people didn't really believe that Roe was going to be overturned. And you see there are a small spattering of states, principally in the Northeast, right, that do have abortion rights written into their constitutions, perceiving that it was possible that Roe might be overturned and wanting to make sure that the right to abortion was enshrined in those states. But for the most part, even states like Maryland, where I live, which have very liberal abortion laws, they don't have constitutional protections within their state constitutions for abortion. And I think it's because this remained inconceivable until just a few years ago, really until the Trump presidency and until Trump's opportunity to appoint three justices to the court, it didn't seem within the realm of the possible that Roe would be completely overturned. And fundamentally, while the court has all this power, what they don't have is any enforcement power, right? They're the ability to enforce the decisions the court makes rest on the perception of the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of the public. And I think it increasingly is an open question how much longer that legitimacy is going to persist, not just because of Roe, but because of a whole slew of really radical decisions that have come out of this court, right, this session um, on the regulatory powers of the state um, in reference to the Environmental Protection Agency, in terms of gun rights, in terms of the separation of church and state, in terms of the rights of states to gerrymander constituencies and draw their own electoral maps without review. And there are all sorts of things that are making the court increasingly seem like a kind of radical and unchecked branch of government. And it does raise the question of how long the broader public is going to be willing to say, okay, that's that's fine. We have this one loose cannon within our constitution that can just do whatever it wants and we might not like it, but we there's nothing we can do about it, right? Um, and so you're starting to see discussion about court packing, um, which we haven't seen since Roosevelt um, in the 1940s, about term limits on justices, which would, as a practical matter, be very hard to implement, but um, is increasingly a conversation in the ether and about ways to ensure that the Supreme Court does have checks on its power. There's also the, the question about Roe itself, that it's based, right, the idea that, that the privacy between a pregnant person and their doctor is what, the, is what the, the protection was. It was a right to privacy. Was that the right part of the Constitution to rely on for the, for the rights to an abortion? Would it have been harder to overthrow if they decided differently? I'm not sure. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, almost from the moment the decision came down, right, um, took the view that it wasn't the right way to go, that actually it should, the decision ought to have been based not on a right to privacy, but woman's right to equal citizenship, right? And the argument that forcing a woman to bear a child has repercussions for her career and her autonomy that make her unequal to a man. But it's not clear to me that for instance, Amy Coney Barrett would have been more swayed by that legal rationale, right? I mean, Amy Coney Barrett seems to have this insane idea that if you force a woman to carry a pregnancy for nine months, at the end, she can just drop a baby off at an adoption drop box or whatever she conceives these places of being, and then go on with your life as if nothing happened. And that the experience of carrying a child, the emotional attachment to that child you develop as you carry it, will have no further repercussions on your life. And therefore, it wouldn't impact women's equality um, in any way to 
to force women to carry pregnancies against their will. And given that this is the position that she was looking at this question from, I'm not sure that a different constitutional grounding would have made any difference to the way that she ruled in this decision. But it has been debated whether or not privacy was the way to go. And it is frightening that Clarence Thomas, who concurred in both in the broader 6-3 Dobbs decision and in the 5-4 majority to overturn Roe v. Wade, went much farther and said, we should look at Griswold, we should look at Lawrence, we should look at Obergefell, all of these decisions that are grounded in a notion of a right to privacy that deal with contraception um, and LGBTQ rights and potentially revisit them as well. But, I mean, as you've said, if they, if the, the intention was to make it harder for people to access abortions, they could find whatever legal arguments they wanted. I mean, in that sense, you can, I mean, as it's perfectly clear from almost all Supreme Court decisions, you can read the Constitution almost any way you want to. And the majority wanted to over overturn Roe, so they came up with legal reasons to do it. So in a sense, the legal arguments, it's not about, it's not about law, it's not about legal arguments, it's not, it's not about interpreting the Constitution, it's about imposing political will, which shouldn't be their job. Well, Deborah, maybe you want to come back in on this, because I thought your piece was quite good about, in some ways, the weaknesses of the way that Roe was argued in the first place, and the fact that part of the decision really rested on the fact that the court had decided that they wanted to to rule that abortion was protected, and that this was a kind of, you know, an opportunity to do so. And it wasn't about the, you know, these weren't seasoned lawyers making the case for Roe before the court. They maybe weren't making the best arguments they could have, um, but the court wanted to weigh in on this issue, and which I guess speaks to Tom's question about this, you know, from the beginning being as much about politics as about law. I mean, agreed. I mean, what's what was interesting to me, particularly when I read Linda Greenhouse's book um, about Justice Blackman, was how uninterested Justice Blackman was in some ways in the law. He delegated to his clerks the bits of his opinion that we had to do with where in the Constitution is the right to privacy. Take a little bit from this amendment, put a little bit from that amendment. He was really more interested in the history of abortion in America and trying to figure out, you know, what had the law been at the time the Constitution was adopted? What had been the law for women, you know, through the 19th century? Knew that there needed to be a right to privacy in order for things that he wanted to follow. But the actual reasoning wasn't that important to him. And indeed, once Roe came down, interestingly, I mean, even though there were some critical articles in in law reviews, one is referred to in Alito's opinion, it becomes the law of the land. People stop debating it. So for years after Roe, nominees to the Supreme Court weren't asked about the case. It was seen as settled law, even if people didn't think it was the most brilliant legal argument. It was seen as precedent, and they didn't worry about it for years until, as you suggested, Tom, people wanted a reason to overturn Roe. I mean, the question then, what next? I mean, you've you've talked a bit already about what other rights are at risk and how reproductive rights are going to be, you know, even further encroached on if the so-called pro-life movement get their way. But in terms of how those rights can be reclaimed or claimed better that 
as Moira Donegan has said, Roe is gone, it's too late to protect reproductive rights, we've moved past prevention and into aspiration, which also means we can build something better than what we had under Roe. I mean, hopefully, I don't have great confidence given the American political landscape. I think most likely what you're going to see is, you know, the expansion. I live in the state of Maryland, right outside of D.C. Maryland has recently expanded their access to abortion, actually overriding a veto from a very centrist but Republican governor um, to allow not just doctors, but also midwives and trained nurses to perform abortions. And they've done this, you know, partially to ensure protections for abortion in the state of Maryland, but also partially in anticipation that they're going to have people coming in from neighboring states, you know, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Virginia, all of which have either imminent or, in the case of West Virginia, West Virginia has a law in the books that predates Roe banning abortion. And it will be, it's an open question how seriously that's going to be enforced. Pennsylvania, in the governor's race, the Republican contenders for governor have said they will pursue an abortion ban um, if a Republican becomes governor of Pennsylvania. And in Virginia to Maryland's um, south, Governor Youngkin is also flirting with the idea of a, a ban on abortion. So Maryland is, is kind of gearing up to become the place that people from neighboring states look to for abortion access. And I think you'll see certain states kind of becoming these hubs nationally for abortion um, and other parts of America becoming, to use the term you used earlier in the podcast, Tom, kind of vast abortion deserts. And that will have really inequitable impacts in terms of who is able to, to travel to these, to these hubs, right, um, and who is, who is stuck in their abortion desert. Deborah, do you agree with that view? Or do you, have, do you think there are hopes for organizing and voting differently and that, that it isn't a question of just relying on the, on the few liberal hubs? I mean, in in the last few weeks, there have been a number of creative proposals. I'm not sure how many of them are actually feasible, but some that seem interesting to me. Um, Having mobile abortion clinics on borders, you know, get as close to banned state as you can. Um, Laura talked about, you know, abortion drugs coming by mail. And an idea that's come up is have them come from a foreign country, you know, outside the American judicial system entirely. What what Americans have have learned or Democrats have learned is um, elections really matter. So the presidency, the Senate, state legislatures. I mean, Laura talked before about gerrymandering. I mean, I think it was Republicans figured out a decade before Democrats that, ooh, if you control a state legislature, I mean, these races that don't get national attention at all, that if you control a state legislature, you control the electoral map, you can get congressional seats that otherwise weren't obtainable, and then those have real national implications. It's taking Democrats a while to catch up. Maybe, you know, I guess the the most optimistic view would be that, you know, we are catching up, give us a few years, we'll be able to appoint our own justices eventually. But Laura, do you think Democrats were were too timid in how we talked about abortion. So, I mean, famously, that the line was always, you know, abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Should we have done a better job of um, explaining, you know, how women's lives are improved by abortion? It doesn't have to be a tragedy. I mean, it's an, I've thought about this a lot, actually, you know, in this, you know, because in some ways I was part of that movement of owning your abortion, right, and saying the word abortion, and I had an abortion. Um, but the flip side is that it is 
whatever the circumstances are, right? It's a tragedy. I mean, it is, I don't, I don't say this as like still a closet Catholic, even though maybe I am one, but it's like, it's an awful decision to have to make, right? It's not a decision that someone is, doesn't want to be rare. It's not a decision that like, there aren't really, I don't think that many people who are like, Ooh, I want abortions to be legal so I can use them as my preferred form of contraception, right? You still have to grapple with the fact you're on it. So I don't, you can see why they didn't take that tack politically. But I feel like hindsight is so 2020 and the, you know, I mean, and also, as you say, this was not only a democratic issue until like 20 years ago. Um, and maybe in the past couple of decades, Democrats should have been thinking more strategically about it. Laura Beers, Deborah Friedel, thank you both very much. You can read Deborah Friedel's piece in the 23rd of June issue of the LRB and Laura Beers's pieces are on the LRB blog. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt.